This episode is clearly a step back for Abraham, and yet in the sovereignty of God, it also advances the plan in a providential and mysterious sort of way. Derek Kidner puts it this way. He says, this chapter marks another stage in eliminating every means but miracle towards the promised birth. I like that. Sometimes failure focuses us further on the promise and power of God. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Sometimes failure focuses us further on the promises and power of God. I love that. God is never the author of our failures, but he does know how to use them to refine and purify our faith. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 16. It might be helpful to remember here that the Bible is not the story of good guys and bad guys. It is the story of bad guys that need Jesus. D.A. Carson says helpfully here, One of the great features of the Bible is its sheer honesty. Great men and women are portrayed with all their warts. This remains a broken world, and the very best are fallen. This should warn us against untamed hero worship. Closed quote. That's a good word. We've talked about how Abraham is faith-illustrated, but that doesn't mean that he is faith-perfected. He is faith-real, but faith-flawed, and we see that in this story. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Well, if you're a Bible reader, then you know that it's not a good thing to listen to the voice of your wife over and against the voice of your God. That was the mistake that Adam made. You remember that back in Genesis chapter 3. God said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Okay, so listening to the voice of your wife in general is a good thing, but not if she is telling you to do something other than what God has said. Now here we learn something very important about human beings and about men in particular, men are inclined to make idols of their wives. An idol is a good thing that you treat as a God thing. An idol is an outsized affection or loyalty. So to to be clear, it's good to love your wife. Okay, it's good to be loyal to your wife. But if if your love for her or your loyalty to her her eclipses your love and loyalty to God, she has become an idol and you have become an idolater. Now, that's not just an Old Testament thing. Jesus said this as well. He said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be 
my disciple. So Jesus is basically saying there that if your love for father, mother, wife, and children eclipses your love for Jesus, you're not a disciple. In fact, he says, your love for me must so eclipse your love for them that it almost looks like hate in comparison. Old Testament and New Testament, God is a jealous God. He doesn't like it when you treat created things as if they were the creator because he is the creator and he alone has the right to your unchallenged obedience. If your wife demands your unchallenged obedience, she's a stumbling block in your life and you need to work that through. Only God has the right to unchallenged love, obedience, loyalty. And Abraham here gives to Sarai what he ought to have given to God. Now, we should probably also notice that what Sarai suggested here was not illegal or sinful per se. In in fact, this is exactly how Jacob ended up with all his kids. He had two wives, Rachel and Leah, and two concubines whose sons were treated in a secondary but legal sense as the sons of their mistresses. So I don't think we could say that this is existentially bad. It is just terribly unwise, and it is a great regression in terms of the faith that Abraham showed in the promise of God in the previous chapter. God said that he would give Abraham a son. In in the last chapter, Abraham is resting in that promise. In the last chapter, he is resting in the fact that God has guaranteed both sides of the covenant. But now Abraham is hedging his bets and he is scheming and plotting rather than resting and trusting. So here we see that sometimes faith is two steps forward and one step back in terms of strength and progress. Verse 3 continues the story. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Here we learn that there is more to life than just right and wrong, sin and not sin. As as we said, this wasn't unlawful per se. Jacob increased his family in in, in this manner without incurring any judgment from God. So what Abraham does here is neither illegal nor unscriptural, per se, but it is terribly unwise. It introduces rivalry and tension into his home. It compromises Abraham as a leader. He comes off as weak, and he makes a pathetic attempt to wash his hands of the whole matter, and he fails to protect a vulnerable member of his household. So this this is not a good episode. Nothing good comes into your family through idolatry and compromise. Mark that down. Verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, 
the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now here we see the kindness and the gentleness of the Lord as he watches over the disregarded person. Even though she will not bear the child of promise, she will nonetheless receive a blessing and a great mercy from the Lord. Verse 11 says, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Here we learn that our lack of faith and our idolatry have long-term consequences for ourselves, for our families, and even for the world. Through his lapse of faith, Abraham has introduced tension into his household and conflict into the region. The offspring of Ishmael will be in perpetual conflict with the offspring of Isaac. The Arabs and the Jews are still fulfilling this prophecy 3,500 years on. I'm sure Abraham didn't realize the full scope of consequences associated with his moment of weakness and bad judgment, but such is the world. We cannot anticipate the consequences of our own actions and decisions. That is why we should not trust our own judgment. That is why it is always better to trust in the word of the Lord. There is a life lesson in there for all of us. Verse 13 goes on to say, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. Well, here we see an illustration of common grace and perhaps more. We, we can't say for sure what all Hagar knew and believed about God, but the text indicates a few noteworthy things. She knew that God was no mere household God. He was the God who sees. Even when we run away, he sees. And he is the God who cares. He looks after me. He has a heart for the vulnerable and the rejected. We also knew know that she knew God as the God whose word must be obeyed. She did what he told her to do. She went back to the household of Abraham. She also knew that he was a God who was blessing Abraham. She knew that if she wanted to continue to experience his blessing, then she needed to return to where those blessings flowed. Verse 15, And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This episode is clearly a step back for Abraham. And yet in the sovereignty of God, it also advances the plan in a providential and mysterious sort of way. Derek Kidner puts it this way. He says, this chapter marks another stage in eliminating every means but miracle towards the promised 
birth. I like that. Sometimes failure focuses us further on the promise and power of God. God is never the author of our bad decisions, but he does know how to use them for our good. Thanks be to God. I love the idea that God uses even our failures to further focus us on his power and his promises. Of course, that doesn't mean God wants us to fail or that he causes us to fail, but it does mean that failure isn't necessarily the end of the story. Yeah, exactly. Of, of course, we never want to fail, but this side of heaven, failure is going to happen. So what matters is what we do with it. If we take it to God, if we give it to God, then he can take it and transform it and somehow in his sovereign grace and mercy, turn it around for our good and his everlasting glory. All right. I love that. And I love that we have the opportunity today to cover two chapters. Chapter 16 was really short, so we're going to jump right back in, right into the text at verse 1 of Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. First thing we should note here is that there's quite a gap between chapter 12 and chapter 17. In chapter 12, Abram is 75. In chapter 15, he's about 10 years older. And here in chapter 17, he's 99 years old. The delay is part of the test. Faith means believing God even when it looks like nothing is happening. The other thing we should probably see here is that even though God has promised to uphold both sides of the covenant back in chapter 15. That doesn't mean that he has changed the way he designed the world to receive the blessings of heaven. The original design of God was for this world to receive the blessings of heaven through human obedience. And now we see that this plan has not changed. God tells Abram, walk before me and be blameless that I may make, the Hebrew word there is natan, which means give, but uh, to make this an English sentence, it's rendered as make. So walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and me and do the things that I said I would do. So the bottom line here is that the design has not changed. God is explaining the conditions whereby the blessings will be released. They will be released through human obedience. And that raises one of the great controversies around the Abrahamic covenant. Is it conditional or unconditional? You will hear people argue that it is both of those things. You'll hear people who are very certain that it's conditional, others who are very certain it's unconditional. And the answer, if you're reading the Bible in a comprehensive way, and if you're looking at all of the passages that talk about the Abrahamic covenant, I don't think you can avoid coming to the conclusion that the answer is both. It is conditional in the sense that it requires human obedience, but it is unconditional in the sense that God promises to uphold both sides of the deal, as per Genesis 15. Now, how in the world does that work in practical terms? That is the great mystery of the Bible, and it is only resolved finally in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, that tension is finally resolved. 
because he is the seed of Abraham and he obeys God perfectly and thereby unlocks all of the blessings of God as God for men on the earth. Until Jesus, that tension just hangs out there in the narrative. God says that he will surely give everything that he has promised, but he also says that he will surely not bless human disobedience. And since every human being is disobedient, it feels like the promises of God are hypothetical and forever beyond our grasp until Jesus, until he comes and does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thanks be to God. Verse three says, then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Now, here is where Abraham gets his new name. All throughout this Genesis series so far, I've been kind of going back and forth in my references to Abraham, sometimes calling him Abram, but usually calling him Abraham, mostly because that's the pattern in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul calls Abraham, Abraham, even when referring to things that happened when he was still technically Abram in the Genesis narrative. For example, when he speaks about Abram's faith in Genesis 15, when that was still his name, he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Romans 4.3. So I follow that general pattern. But here, finally, Abraham gets his new name. His old name, Abram, meant exalted father. His new name, Abraham, means the father of many nations. And this reminds us that the promises made to Abraham were always going to be bigger than the Jewish people. They came through the nation of Israel, but they were always ultimately for every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth. We should also notice that this covenant with Abraham is called an everlasting covenant. And that reminds us of something we heard from Derek Kidner back when we were discussing chapter 15. Talking about the significance of that chapter, Kidner said, the New Testament finds this a momentous chapter in two respect. First, in its declaration that Abram was justified by faith, a phrase at the heart of Paul's gospel in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. And secondly, in its record of the covenant for this, rather than Sinai's, was the fundamental covenant. And it spoke of grace and not law. Closed quote. So it's the second significant aspect that Kidner points out there that I want you to notice. The fact that the Abrahamic covenant is primary. Kidner uses the word fundamental. The Mosaic covenant, Kidner refers to it as the Sinai covenant. The Mosaic covenant was supplementary and temporary. The Mosaic covenant was about law and ritual and form. It intended to teach the people about God, about holiness, and about the coming means of their redemption. And it has been fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. But the Abrahamic covenant remains. It is fundamental. It is 
everlasting. The new covenant through Christ is the completion, the climax of that covenant. Jesus is how God keeps our side of the Abrahamic covenant. So there is an organic connection between the Abrahamic covenant and what we call the new covenant. The one is the promised outgrowth and climax of the other. Now, if we go back to our snowball analogy, we might say that at its core, the covenant God makes with Abraham is fundamentally about grace. It is about what God will give that will save and restore his people. It is unconditional in the sense that God guarantees even our side of the deal. As it rolls forward, some temporary helps are added, such as the Mosaic Covenant. But fundamentally, it is about grace. It is about what God will do. And that all climaxes, the snowball reaches full and glorious expression in the person and work of Christ. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Verse 9 of chapter 17 goes on to say, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now here we have the sign of the original Abrahamic covenant. Now, it's very important that we remember this sequence here. Abraham is already saved. He was saved by grace through faith. We saw that in Genesis 15, two chapters ago. So the sign follows his salvation. This is important for a couple of reasons. For the Apostle Paul, this sequence reminds us to keep the focus on the thing signified, not the sign itself. The sign can be changed. The thing signified is everlasting. Paul emphasized that sequence in Romans 4.11. He says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Abraham was saved by grace through faith. His circumcision came many years later. It didn't make him saved. It reminded him that he was saved. It witnessed. It did not make. That is important. Thus, the Apostle Paul can say in Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. So, to be clear, circumcision is not required for Christians under the new covenant. As the old Puritan preacher Matthew Henry reminds us here, he says circumcision was a bloody ordinance For all things by the law were purged with blood, but the blood of Christ being shed, all bloody ordinances are now abolished. So it is no longer in effect. It was a witness and a sign, 
But interestingly, we are not told exactly what circumcision is intended to signify. Why should cutting off a small piece of very sensitive human anatomy represent God's unique relationship with the family of Abraham? We're not told specifically, but we can make a few guesses. In the Egyptian world, circumcision was associated with ordination to the priesthood. And we know that the book of Genesis was written by and for people who had been raised as a nation inside Egyptian culture. So if Moses didn't feel the need to explain the meaning of circumcision, then our best guess would be that its meaning is best understood through the lens of Egyptian culture. God then would be saying that his covenant people are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, something God will make explicit in Exodus 19. We pick up our story at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. I like what D.A. Carson says here. He says, Abraham's understandable but unhappy skepticism that he will bring forth a son of Sarah at this late stage in their marriage leads him to propose Ishmael as the one through whom God will fulfill his promises. But God will have none of it. Ishmael will sire great numbers, but the covenant line goes through Isaac. The history of the covenant people is thus decisively shaped by God's sovereign choice. Indeed. Verse 22 says, When he had finished talking with him, God went up with Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of the flesh very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son, Ishmael, were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Here we note Abraham's immediate and painful obedience to the commandment of God. We should also note the diversity of those included. There were servants and sons, free and bond, rich and poor, old and young, Old Testament and New Testament, the church of God is a diverse people, all saved the same way, but all very different in their coming. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. 
You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 